Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is spirituality and the out of body experience. My guest is Graham Nichols who has 30 years of experience having out-of-body experiences and researching them. Graham has participated in research at the Ryan Research Center and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is on the advisory board for the Ryan Research Center. He is author of Avenues of the Human Spirit and Navigating the Out-of-Body Experience, Radical New Techniques. Graham is located in London, England, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Graham. It's such a joy to have you with me here today. It's really good to be here. Thank you. You have been having out-of-body experiences for 30-plus years now. How did you come to having these experiences? Initially, I had spontaneous experiences, um, maybe two or three initial spontaneous experiences. Um and then a little while after that, I discovered the concept of out-of-body experiences, maybe um, in a newspaper article or on the TV or something like that. I don't really remember now. But I, I heard the concept somewhere, and then I went and bought a book, um, a scientific book by a parapsychologist called Janet Lee Mitchell, and read that and became really fascinated that this was a real thing. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to commit to a period of time. I think it was about a year I said I would commit because I'd read that it takes a long time to learn it. So I think I decided to commit to about a year to try and learn to do it for myself. So I did. And I strangely for such a young kid, I was about, um, I think I was about 13 at that point, 13 and a half, something like that. Um, so I, I got this book and I completely focused on, on learning and I spent every single night for the next six months. It took me six months to induce my first intentional out-of-body experience. So that was really how it all started. And what was it about your initial experience that led you to wanting to have more of them? I think the first ones when I was very young were, were the spontaneous ones were just really they were so vivid and so powerful and so kind of um, just seeing the world in that way, even though I was seeing quite ordinary things, the early experiences were just to places like um, near the school that I went to when I was a kid and things like that. Um, but, but it was everything I was seeing was so intensely vivid and it was almost like the, the concrete and the buildings and stuff almost had an, an energy like a, like a memory or a, or a kind of, um, aura to them. So I think that was what really made me think this is a really interesting, unusual experience, um, in a childish kind of way at that age. But, um, so then when I started hearing about it, I, I was also interested in other paranormal topics and things like that. So it, it just became, like something I really wanted to learn to do intentionally. And once I found out you could do that, I was just, yeah, really fascinated and wanted to do it really. 
And did you find that in those experiences that your consciousness was or is how you and I are communicating now? Or did you, do you find that it has another quality or even a, a more spiritual quality when you're having those? I think it depends on the experience. Sometimes it can be very, I guess, almost mundane. It can, it can feel very like everyday reality. But then in other experiences, um, it can go to a very transcendent kind of state or even like states that are akin to something like oneness or monism, those kinds of transcendence sort of states that you can achieve in, in mystical experiences. So, um, I think the out of body experiences really cover the whole range of levels that you can, you can experience. And sometimes they can seem mundane as well. And then later on, you kind of realize that there was something deeper going on. Uh, for example, like an, an experience I had where I found myself moving over the coast of Cuba. And at the time I thought this was just beautiful scenery and a, you know, a, just a kind of a, a physical experience that was just about seeing that place and seeing that, that environment. But then afterwards I realized that it was the first experience I'd had since, uh, a very close, um, family friend had died and I realized that she was born in Cuba. Um, and then suddenly that experience took on this extra meaning that I felt like it was almost like a message from her. So, so yeah, so, so sometimes they can seem like there's nothing going on or beyond the beauty of the experience, but then there's something else kind of underneath it. How would you describe what an out of body experience is for those who it might be a new concept? I tend to look at it as like all of your, um, all of your consciousness and all, all of your sensory experience is extended beyond the body. So you're experiencing everything in a sensory way from a location outside or beyond your physical body. Um, it's, it's like a, it's like a psychic experience, but an immersive psychic experience. That's how I would describe it. It's, it's like all of, all of your senses are activated or most of them. Actually, you don't tend to have taste and things like that very often, but, um, but you have sight and hearing and you have a, a sense of feeling and movement, things like that. So I think that it's a, it's a kind of multi-sensory experience of being separate from the body, but there's also difference, differences in terms of there's the experience that you have and how it feels for you. And then there's what might really be going on. And I think the question of what really might be going on is a lot more complicated. Um, on a personal level, it might mean, it might feel like your spirit has come out and you're moving around in the environment or going to another level of reality or something like that. But in terms of the science, I think that it's probably a lot more complex than that and to do with, um, how consciousness works, how, uh, whether we are interconnected with our environment. There's lots of different aspects and elements to it that I think still need to be explored to, to a greater extent. There's, there's a lot of assumptions in the science that has been done and there's a lot, um, yet to even be touched upon. So yeah, I think there's a lot still to be done. What is it that is leaving the physical body? 
Well, that comes down to that question, you know, cause, cause we don't, we don't really know. Um, that, that's, that's what's fascinating about the science. Is something leaving the body or are we somehow interconnected with our environment? Is consciousness always outside of the body? There's these kinds of ideas. Um, for example, a lot of people in near death experience research, uh, feel that, um, the brain or, yeah, the, the, the brain is almost like a, a filter that's, uh, reducing down consciousness into a singular form. But when, when that filter is taken away, which is what happens in an outer body or a near death experience, um, suddenly you can experience the full range of consciousness. So there's that kind of idea. Then there's I- ideas, something akin to, that the brain is something like a computer and then that computer is connected to something similar to the internet. So you have this, um, this ability to connect to data or information or perception all over the world or and beyond. So, so that's another way that you could think about it. And then it's right through to more spiritual conceptions of a spirit or something like that. But again, what do we mean by that? What does, what does it mean to say a spirit? You know, so what is a spirit made of? Is it made of anything? You know, there's those kinds of questions arise if you use those kinds of terminologies. So I guess, um, there are theories like Brian Josephson, for example, the Nobel laureate in physics who feels that probably it's going to turn out to be something to do with, uh, quantum non-locality. So that, we're, so we're dealing with this idea of uh, interconnectedness in in that sense um so some of the scientists are saying that uh sir roger penrose as well have a, has a similar idea that consciousness could be essentially that the microtubules the very very low level structures of cells are interconnected and that's how actually consciousness is arising and how consciousness can also be extended beyond the body. So there's, there's a lot of different ideas of what could be going on. So I think it's a really fascinating time to ask those kind of questions, but we don't know yet. Perhaps the awareness is shifting in the out-of-body experience from being in the physical body to maybe our connection to everything and possibilities. Yeah, sure. It could be. Um, well, it, well, it seems that's what's going on. I mean, from a personal experience, when we have the out of body experience, we're perceiving things at, at a location far from where we are, or we're, we're interacting with other forms of consciousness. So there's, there's this sense that we are able to shift our awareness away from just who we physically feel that we are. Actually, in many ways, the secret to initiating out of body experiences is to, is to get to that point where we can realize that we are more than just the physical body, that there is this ability to um, extend our perception beyond the physical and that the physical is, does not define and limit us. As soon as we have that realization, that's when the out of body experience can fully unfold because what tends to happen is people have a strong belief that they are just their physical body and if that's all that's going on and you can only perceive within those limited frameworks then that doesn't allow for other types of experiences to unfold um, like psychic experiences or out-of-body experiences or mystical experiences whatever 
Yeah, which you say are all really connected. All those experiences aren't necessarily separate. Yeah, I think I think we break them up for the for the benefit of language, and so that we can talk about them, so that we can study them, so that we can think about what that, what might be going on and what they might be. But I think ultimately, um, when we look at research in the lab. There tends to be an overlap between the types of things that impact psychic abilities and the kinds of things that impact uh, what we call mystical or spiritual experiences or altered states of consciousness, all of these kinds of things. They all seem to have this um, relationship. I mean, for example, um, in research, people who are more creative and more uh, often musicians and people like that tend to do very well in laboratory psychic experiments. So there's there's a particular demographic almost, there's a particular like group or way, uh, type of people who look at things in a particular way that seems to impact um, their own ability to do these kind of things. That's not to say analytic, analytical people can't do it as well, but it's just that the people who do the best tend to be those kinds of people. And also people who are long-term meditators, for example, in Dean Radin's research, there's been a lot of um, evidence that people who are long-term meditators do very, very well in in psychic research, especially with things like the double slit experiment, which is one of the things that I worked with. So those kinds of things tend to uh, have an impact. The, the more that you work with your consciousness and your creativity and those kinds of things, the more likely you are that you're going to be able to also connect to psychic type things. You participated in a research study with Dean Radin at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Can you share a little bit about that experience and what you all discovered? I was doing some, uh, doing a talk about my work at uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences and uh, went into a lot of different aspects of uh, what I do and of what I think might be going on. And at the time, Dean was doing research into... Um, micro PK or psychokinesis. So very, very low level, um, ability to influence things on a, on a quantum level. Um, so he had a setup with a, an interferometer that basically fires photons, particles of light, um, through the double slits. Many people will have heard of the double slit experiment. And the experiment was essentially, uh, there was an audio recording. I was sitting in this steel box but, uh, in the laboratory, which was basically like a Faraday cage. Um, so it cancels out any electromagnetic fields, any signals, any, you know, it's, it's also sound shielded, I believe. So basically you're completely immersed in this environment. And then, um, there's a recording that tells you when to try and influence the double slit and when not to, to do it. So they have a, they have a control line basically when you're not doing it, they can see that they can take that data as, as the control in the study. And on this particular occasion, I, I just had this, um, intense energy actually like the vibrational state which is a common precursor to the outer body experience uh really came over me and the whole uh sort of room that i was in became intensely hot it was almost like a felt like a sauna in there um 
And when, when the door was open, the interesting thing was a lot of people felt this kind of rush of heat, but then apparently there was no change in the actual physical temperature in there. So that was an interesting thing that happened with that particular experiment as well. And then, um, Dean found that, um, the, the effect of the photons was going in the predicted direction. So essentially it looked like psychic ability was definitely affecting the photons. And then he, uh, repeated that experiment a few times. That was 2014 when I did it. And then he's replicated it a few times. And then also other laboratories have replicated it. So it shows that people can influence things on a, on a quantum level, um, psychically essentially. Well done. <laughs> You've also participated in research at the Rhine Research Center as well. Yeah, um, I've been quite involved with the Rhine. They're probably the main organization that I've worked with um, over the over that period of time. I, I actually met um, John Cruz from the Rhine around the same uh, during the same trip to the US in in 2014, um, and. I started working with them then. So I, I teach courses with them. I advise on their, on some of their research and things like that. And then also, um, John invited me to, to do this, uh, long study over, I think it was about 12 weeks, the official study. Um, so in that study, we had targets set up. Um, they would select a target in the US. They would use a photograph um, to designate the target. Um, and then all I would know is that there was a target. I would be sent a message. Um, and then I would have to select the method that I wanted to use. So it could be an out-of-body experience. It could be remote viewing. It could be uh, using the Gansfeld process, uh, which is essentially like mild sensory deprivation. So I experimented with different ways to see if I could connect my perception to this remote location because we did have a longer period of time to do this study. It was interesting for me because I could experiment and see maybe what took me deeper and allowed me to get uh, deeper into an out-of-body experience or deeper into what I call non-local perception. So those kind of uh, remote perceptions or forms of clairvoyance, you, you would call it really. I mean, because remote viewing really just refers to a protocol a structured way of doing clairvoyance. So really at the end of the day, remote viewing is clairvoyance. Um, so, so yeah, so I was approaching it with those different, uh, techniques and it was also, also had a precognitive element to it as well, because, um, they wanted to see if, if predictions could be made. So there was a whole range of different things we were, we were looking at. And then there was also other things they were looking at, like, um, the judge, how the person who judges the results can have an influence on the outcome of a study. Um, I didn't know that at the time. That was something that they kept secret because they, they, uh, you know, I uh, wanted to look at that, uh, as a separate thing. So, yeah, so there was a lot of elements to the study and yeah, we got positive results again to show that that kind of thing can be done. Um, and predictions can be made and all of that. So yeah, it was a, a really great thing to be involved with. And did you choose to use the out of body experience or remote viewing when you participated in that study? Or did you use a combination? 
I, I use both. I use both. I use combinations of techniques because I guess my, my goal was to try and, um, you know, get an accurate result with the, with the target. So I use different approaches to see ultimately what would be more effective. But interestingly, the more, um, out of body approaches that I did, um, were the more accurate results in the study. But I think that, I think it's important to highlight, I think the difference with something like remote viewing and out of body experiences is remote viewing is something that you can do quite consistently and you just sort of sit down and you, you can do it as long as you're, you know, in a fairly right frame of mind, maybe with some kind of cool down or, you know, getting yourself into the right state, meditation, something like that. But with an out of body experience, um, when you get into the experience, you need it to be what I would call a peak experience in order for it to be highly veridical or objectively accurate. So it's much harder to do in it in a way that can be looked at in, in scientific studies. So that's why it, it was kind of useful to have different approaches that could be used on different, different days. Um, when you're doing a longer kind of study like that. Um, I think that's really what's, what's happened in the past is there's been, um, limitations on the research because it requires the person who's having the outbody experience to be able to reach a peak experience very, very consistently. And essentially no one really can do that a hundred percent of the time. It's like everybody's human and they have good days, bad days, etc. So, so it needs to be sort of, uh, worked with in a way that allows for the positive experiences or the peak experiences to happen. So um, when I wasn't on my peak days, I would use more the remote viewing approaches. And when I was more on a peak day, I would use out body approaches. So that's kind of how I, how I approached it to get the best results. Do you differentiate between remote viewing and out-of-body experience where one is receiving information? Well, you're receiving information in both, but one is where you're maybe in your, in your physical body and you're receiving the information versus going to get the information? Or do you, how do you look at that? Well, that's an interesting question because in remote viewing, are you just receiving it or are you sending your awareness to, to see it? I, I, I don't know. Um, I would just say that it's, I, I see the main difference is just the depth of the immersion in the experience. Obviously with, with remote viewing, um, you're usually starting off with a piece of paper and an ideogram and kind of trying to read information in a very conscious, logical way. At that point, you're not really immersing yourself even in, in the experience in the, in the first stages of remote viewing. So it's just more at that point trying to pick up data by probing the ideogram like very basic things like is it hard or soft or is it wet is the location um a desert or you know those kinds of things you're just trying to get basic pieces of information to start with and then it and then it continues into more and more immersion but with an out-of-body experience, it's like all of the senses are activated and all awareness of the physical environment and the body have been shut down. So it's like you're fully in the non-local experience. But can a remote viewing turn into that? I think probably yes. Um, it's just the depth and um, degree uh, to which you've been immersed. But by keeping 
a level of not going quite so immersed into the experience with remote viewing. It allows for greater control and greater ability to ask specific questions and look at specific elements. Whereas once you go into the full out-of-body experience, it tends to do its own thing a lot of the time. You can control it, but the more you try to control it, the more it tends to undermine the integrity of the experience to the point that it can destabilize it um, and then you come back to your body. So it's it's sort of, uh, I generally think it's best without body experiences to go with them as much as possible or steer them. It's almost like, it's almost like surfing or something like that. You don't, you can make decisions about where you go to some degree, but if you completely try to take over the experience, you'll probably just lose, lose control. You mentioned that in an out-of-body experience, you can have peak experiences. How much do you feel emotions or mm, some of those more ecstatic states that might be connected to a peak experience are part of an out-of-body experience and um, maybe even necessary to have one? Peak or ecstatic type experiences often arise um again it's something i'm not sure you can totally predict it tends to happen when everything is right and everything is in flow and everything sort of just naturally unfolds but they do happen on occasion where you just um i think it's when you go very deeply into that interconnected state where that where where it's almost like a oneness or something like that where um you're, you've managed to get quite a long way beyond um, identification with your physical body and you've gone into a very deep state and then um, you start to get th- things like interconnected awareness. So you start to feel connected with all, you know, thoughts and perceptions from other beings, people, animals, you know, all, all different kinds of perceptions start to kind of come into your mind. I I had one experience that looked very much like the painting The Universal Mind Lattice by an artist called Alex Gray. And I it looked almost identical to that. So I've always had that image, you know, as like my reference point for that experience. But I in in my version of it, I went in into the center of this sort of fountain of light. Um and when I did, it was like I was perceiving the thoughts and emotions and the whole life stories. Of, it felt like millions of people for a split second. And then it kind of destabilized and I came back to my body. But for that moment in time, it felt like I was everything almost. It was a complete um, transcendent experience. Um, so I think you can get to that kind of level with out of body experiences right through to right through to something very simple like looking at a picture in another country or you know um so yeah there's a, there's a full range of what it can do and i think it can be very healing as well with this kind of uh um experience where you just feel completely re- renewed or uh revitalized which i think is why um in traditional ideas around shamanism and things like that, there's this idea of leaving the body to go and bring healing back to a community. That's almost the literal definition of shamanism. And so I think this idea of leaving the body and it having a healing benefit is, is very 
ancient as well. So there's 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 lots of aspects that that I guess bring in that deep sense of spirituality within um, the out of body experience. But the great thing is is you don't have to have any preconceptions about that. Those things just seem to open up very naturally as you as you go through the experience. You've mentioned several of them. What are some other benefits of the out-of-body experience? I always feel that it's a way of directly connecting with the essence of yourself. If you believe in something like a spirit, um, then essentially an out-of-body experience is a way to directly experience your spirit, um, which I think is a, a powerful thing in terms of how you think about yourself, who you are, what is yourself, what is your identity, those kinds of questions. And then as well, our sense of fear of death and things like that does having an experience where you're completely um, liberated from your physical body, does that actually diminish that sense of fear of those kinds of things? And I think it does. I think you get to this point where obviously don't lose fear of losing loved ones or losing or going through suffering or things like that. But I think it definitely gives you this sense that there is more or some kind of continuation of your conscious awareness beyond just the, the physical aspect of yourself. So, so yeah, I think all of those kinds of things, those questions, those emotional understandings of ourselves, all of those kinds of things have a benefit so and I think really there's so many religious and spiritual traditions that try to give us an understanding of what might be going on in 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 the world and in in our own spiritual landscape so I think the out-of-body experience is a way to explore that for ourselves and to try and kind of discover instead of reading about it or learning about it from someone else you know directly experiencing it so I think that's the most valuable thing you can have, really. You mentioned also that it can help with a greater sense of having more peace and compassion. Yeah, I think that goes back to um, the experience I was mentioning, you know, like that interconnected, that kind of fountain of light like the, um, and things like that, where I experience a connection with everything, with all life. So, um, in those kinds of experiences, um, it, it's, it's when you, when you really experience that sort of identification with another person in that way that you and that person are not separate in that moment, um, or maybe at all, you know, but in that moment, you feel completely like you're not separate. If you can have that kind of, um, experience of oneness, then it's very hard then to, try and look at someone as an enemy or try to make that kind of division because you, you're having like the ultimate form of empathy really, which is essentially what compassion is really. It's this deep sense of I identify my experience as me with another person who seems to be external to me. So once I have that deep sense of my experience is related to their experience, why would I then want to harm them? And that then goes to non-human animals, etc. as well. So it's like, why would I harm that animal? Um, that animal has just as much desire to live and be within the world as I do. So it, it kind of, it really 
for me was a kind of flowering of ideas around compassion and things like that because it just um made sense to start to see other people as and, and the natural world everything has just a part of the process of nature and i'm a part of that process as well we're all just a part of that bigger scheme of things yeah you describe also that people who have out of body experiences can have a a shared experience and that there's even verifiable information that both parties um unbeknownst to each other were really experiencing uh what they both said they had yeah there are there are cases of actually shared death experiences um where people have had an out of body experience while someone else is having a near death experience and so the person having the out of body experience is seen or shared in the dying process of the other person and then um you know been able to relate that there's been situations of multiple people in a family all having the experience of the of the dying person so it's a literally sharing in the death of that person and i had an experience where i saw a group of people who'd just passed in a plane crash um and so i saw you know lots of the details little i i saw bits of their life review basically pieces of information almost seemed like they were coming from their minds and i was seeing them visually and all of these different kinds of elements and it was in this very stereotypical in many ways very sort of misty cloudy sort of environment there was no up down left right kind of thing it just felt like this misty environment and this group of people were going through this process of of kind of unfolding their awareness or unfolding their life experience into something different transforming into something different um and then right through to experiences where for example one one person i worked with who i was teaching to have out of body experiences i mentioned to him that it's good to have like a support structure to work with other people like with learning lots of things it's good to have other people who are also doing the same process and he interpreted that by involving his family including his i believe he was 11 years old 11 year old son um so um in that particular experience um my student had an out body experience and went into another room in his home and he saw a shadowy figure um a small shadowy figure move into the same room and he realized he got this sense of the nature of this other figure and realized that it was his son um and then the next morning his son came running into the room to say that he had his first out of body experience and he'd and, and interestingly he also saw his father as a shadowy figure so they saw each other in the same way as well so so that was a really interesting case with directly with one of my students and um he even sent me a drawing and some notes that the the little boy had made um so i i have like a you know drawing and stuff of uh his first experience it was his first out of body experience and he saw his father in it so that's an example as well and then i've also had um instances where people have said that they feel like they've seen me when i've been in an out of body experience and things like that so so yeah so it's definitely not an easy thing to do it's not something that's reported commonly 
but it is but it is an aspect of our body experiences that you do encounter every so often. Why do you think we aren't always as aware of this interconnectedness, this oneness? Do you think that it might be too much quote noise, too overwhelming for us to to go about our daily activities, or do you think that we are evolving to be able to do that more just in general? It's hard to say. I, I think it's probably just that our, our natural state is quite focused on each other and on day-to-day things. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, interestingly, I think technology to some degree and, and the fact that of how easy it is to connect with people and things like that. I'm noticing that young people now, sort of people who, young people who are born after the internet and after um, smartphones and things like that, it doesn't seem so alien to them that you can instantly communicate with people on the other side of the world and all of that kind of stuff. (laughs) Whereas when, you know, me growing up kind of pre-internet, that kind of concept wasn't so normal. It was something that, you know, you had to write letters and things like that in those days. So make long distance, uh, collect phone calls. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. Um, whereas now for young people, that's, that, that seems bizarre almost to them. So, so I think that there does seem, and as a result of that, there seems to be that a lot of them find it easier to do some of the psychic experiments um with like Rupert Sheldrake for example who I've also worked with he he has some uh online experiments and things like that so you can just literally connect on his website and try out these different things and he's also working on an app he might have even launched it I'm not sure but um but he also wants to create experiments that are work that are working on mobile devices and things like that because that way these the sort of new generations can just do things that are very natural to them and create more data for in support of uh, psychic abilities and stuff like that so um I don't know exactly whether it's we're evolving or whether it's just as a as a result of the technological environment we're in. I think we need kind of a balance. I think definitely being immersed in nature and things like that can be very be- beneficial as well. So there needs to be a balance. I think the the mentality of technology can be very helpful. Like I just mentioned that um, instantaneous communication side of it. But then I think we also need to maybe move away from the more toxic sides of it, the, the social media influence and things like that that can be can be problematic, um, you know, and especially with the mass manipulation that comes through some of these large companies like Google, etc., which I've completely removed from my life. I don't use any big tech now. <laughs> You mentioned that you've done some work with Rupert Sheldrake. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I uh, back in about 2008, I uh, reached out to him because I'd been working with the out-of-body experience for a while, but um, I was aware that of skeptics, I guess, and, and I do have quite a skeptical attitude towards things myself. So... Um, a lot of them had said, oh, well, you know, nobody ever, 
you know, people talk about these kind of experiences, but they never do any science or they never kind of prove it in the laboratory kind of thing. And I thought, well, yeah, that's good. That's a relevant criticism. You know, that's fair enough to say that. So I thought, okay, so I need to do some experiments in the laboratory. So I reached out to Rupert Sheldrake and he, he was also interested in my artwork that I was doing sort of installation art and things like that, immersive installations, which is also related to this idea of going deeper into, um, different states of consciousness and things like that. Because I've, I've always been interested in what we can do with the, with the mind without the use of substances and things like that. Um, I've always been, I don't drink alcohol or smoke or take any drugs or anything like that. And I never have. So I, I focus on what I can do with my mind in a sort of natural way, essentially. So I've always been interested in how we can use sort of more sensory methods to try and kind of go deeper into our own awareness and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so he, he was, he'd been criticized for doing some experiments that the, the skeptical community had claimed that maybe someone could have used a mobile phone in order to cheat. Um, so he, he wanted to do some experiments that were in a, in an environment that you couldn't use a mobile phone. So i.e. something like a bunker or an underground space, something like that, where basically there's no free, there's no sig- signals. You can't, um, phone out or you can't even get a signal. So there's no way you can cheat. So I helped, well, I located, um, a few places and we ended up selecting this place in East London. Um, and then I set up a range of experiments and got, uh, participants and also participated myself. And we did a range of, uh, experiments looking at telepathy, mainly via telephones. So a lot of people describe, for example, the phone rings and they just get this feeling that they know who it is. Um, this is a really, really commonly reported thing and they pick up the phone and then it is the person that they thought. The skeptical explanation is that, oh, you know, they, it's just chance and they, they might have just thought of that person randomly and then coincidentally it's them and then they remember it because it was confirmed. But if it, if it, if they'd been wrong, they would have just forgotten about it. This is the sort of skeptical assumption. So, um, Rupert wanted to see if, there's any truth to that and and whether there is actually something psychic going on he also works for example with the sense of being stared at that feeling where you feel like someone's looking at you from behind and then you turn around and there is someone looking at you that kind of thing so he's looked at all of those um but in this particular study we found that um again evidence that people can sense when the person on the other end of the phone is the person they think it is. But interestingly, it needs to be someone they are emotionally connected to. So there's an emotion factor that's very important. If you take two strangers, they can't do it. But if you take two people who are like family or um, lovers or something like that, then then you can find that there's a strong link or connection and they're able to do the the experiment. So... So yeah, that was a really interesting series of experiments as well. And then I also took part in his, um, precognitive experiment, um, cause I've had precognitive out of body experiences, I should mention as well. So this is the 
precognition link with me. One of the most significant out of body experiences out there really was one of one that I had where um, there were four people in the room with me, and I was able to perceive um, a, a bombing five days before it actually happened in an out of body experience. So that was a the Soho bombing. That was a powerful experience that I had. Um, but yeah, so the other experiment I did with Rupert Sheldrake was this uh, precognition experiment using sound where you had to try and predict what sound was going to be played um, a few seconds after you pressed a button. Um, and in that one, apparently I got the highest score he'd ever seen in a single trial. So so that was good. <laughs> yeah, good job. <laughs> So people can have spontaneous out-of-body experiences. You yourself had one um, reading your book and and preparing for this interview. I recalled having a handful of experiences where I was hovering over my body in bed and I realized that I was essentially felt like I was coming back to my body after leaving it while sleeping. And what was interesting was that I was inverted. So I was on my bed, um, face up and my body was also in that horizontal position, but my head was toward my feet. And I realized that I had to somehow get my head back up <laughs> where my head was for me to enter back into my body. <laughs> okay. Have other people described these kinds of experiences to you during sleep? Well, during sleep, um, people have all kinds of, uh, strange experiences i guess i mean a lot of them link to sleep paralysis so sleep paralysis is a usually quite scary experience where people wake up in the in the middle of the night and they feel like they're par- paralyzed um and often they'll feel there's a presence in the room with them and things like that so it can be quite a scary experience but i don't have out of body experiences from sleep um and i i induce the experiences from a a conscious relaxed waking state so i'm not um and i don't teach people to use sleep paralysis either because i think it's just too stressful a lot of the time for people and they can have these quite strange distorted experiences so things like that um i tend to associate more with um like a waking dreams or sleep paralysis type experience. Um, but yeah, people do describe all kinds of things, but I think if they go more with the waking state approaches to inducing out body experiences, you tend not to have the, the more distorted or strange kinds of experiences. I think that's probably because there's elements of your sort of dreaming mind still active but then there's something more going on as well. So some people um, do manage to get to a point where they can control the sleep paralysis, not get scared during that experience, and then use use it as a launch pad for the out-of-body experience. So that is an option. I, I just think it's, for a lot of people, that's a very difficult process to get to or point to get to. But yeah, I've had all kinds of experiences described over the years. What is sleep paralysis? Well, it's just a form of waking nightmare, basically, where you where you just uh, you wake up, but you can't move. You feel like your whole body is just frozen to the spot, but your 
you think you're awake. Um, I think some people do actually open their eyes, but a lot of people, they are actually still dreaming and they, that they perceive the room sometimes. Um, but then the room will have scary elements in it. So sometimes they're literally looking at the real room. Um, and there'll be these other elements, like they'll, they'll maybe see like a, like a figure, there's classic ones like the old crone or like an old man that sort of come, you know, and it can be quite scary. Um, some people think that, um, alien abduction experiences, for example, are a form of sleep paralysis as well because that it has a lot of the same characteristics, waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to move a small figure. Or, um, if you look at some of the, paintings for example of um succubi in the in the medieval times these sort of um demons that, that they believed used to come onto their bodies and all that kind of stuff it looks very much like what we now understand to be sleep paralysis so yeah it's it's a i've never actually experienced it myself so i'm not that able to describe it in that much depth but from what i understand from people who have experienced it it's a it's basically just this sort of waking nightmare, essentially, where you, where you can't move. Yeah, it does seem that at least some of the experiences I've had that I've been able to travel while sleeping. Um, of course, one could argue what's a dream versus some of those experiences, but it, they can feel very vivid. And then, of course, there's also lucid dreaming as well. Yeah, lucid dreaming is often associated with out-of-body experiences. I tend to... Um, not be too um into that idea let's say um i i think they're separate things i think that sort of the the age of the internet has sort of confused a lot of things unfortunately so i think um lucid dreaming and out-of-body experiences have been blurred and confused because some people use lucid dreaming in order to induce an out-of-body experience. But then I think some people who are using it to induce an out-of-body experience are actually just having lucid dreams and they're not actually inducing an out-of-body experience. So it's, so that confuses things further because they say, Oh, I had this out-of-body experience. And then they describe what I would consider a lucid dream. So you get into this sort of tricky area um but i guess it goes back to what i was saying before about this continuum of consciousness or this continuum of experience um they are all forms of conscious experience that we can have i guess what you would the distinction you could make for example with lucid dreaming is that lucid dreaming happens when you're asleep and when you're dreaming by definition, those, those two things have to be there. Whereas an out of body experience can happen in almost, well, I think actually in every state of consciousness that we're aware of, including cardiac arrest and literally no consciousness. So we have the complete spectrum of an out of body experience. So that's something that really clearly distinguishes it from like a dreaming type state. Because there's descriptions of people driving a car and having an out-of-body experience. There's people I've had, for example, walking um, down the stairs in my in the house I used to live in and going into an out-of-body experience. So I was literally just walking around. Only happened once, but but that shows that it can happen. Um, and 
then you have people who who have had out of body experiences from deep meditation or you know or from sleep so so there's this complete range of types of states of mind that the experience can arise from and obviously the most potent one really in, in many ways is when the person is in like a cardiac arrest or something like that and then they have an out body experience so that that shows that it's not dependent upon a particular state of mind or a particular type of brain activity what qualities does the out of body experience have for you to recognize that it is in fact that versus somebody having using their imagination or some type of fantasy experience i always keep a degree of skepticism and neutrality when there's no way to sort of verify that there was more to the experience going on so that's why i do like the more objective or verifiable experiences because then that suggests that there's a quality that's you that's that was objective beyond just what was going on in my mind but i guess over the years i can see a clear distinction in terms of the depth of the experience the quality of the perception unusual things that happen like zooming with with vision for example you can look at something and your vision zooms right right in on it sometimes um there's also commonly uh duotone color so two tone color where you see you know maybe blue and green or blue green but you don't see the other um colors of the visible light spectrum so it's almost like you've sort of honed in on just two um so that's quite common as well so those are visual aspects of the experience that are not something that I've ever seen in another experience I don't get that when I do remote viewing or lucid dreaming or whatever um also the actual experience of floating and moving around is nearly always an aspect of an out of body experience it's not always an aspect of lucid dreaming or these other uh types of experiences that you can have so there are specific qualities of the experience that seem to highlight that it's something different that's going on and then those qualities plus the with that depth of experience and that kind of um intensity of vision and all of those kinds of things um you can identify it when you've experienced it when you've had that it's it, again it's quite it's one of those things like trying to explain something to someone who's never had that experience it's very tricky but but i think that when you break down the phenomenology of the experience there are key characteristics like what i just mentioned like floating the way vision works the um way that you don't tend to have taste and things like that you know there's lots of different elements that seem to highlight that it's an out-of-body experience and not something else right how do you describe to somebody what chocolate tastes like <laughs> exactly <laughs> So when somebody's at a store and they're thinking about where they're going to catch the next bus or train or where they might have parked their car or bike, could there be elements of out-of-body experience in those moments? I, I think I think I would say maybe like non-local perception. I think that there is this idea that that we can perceive things or we can pick elements up. It's just like I said, it's just in terms of degree. Um, 
we can get little glimpses or little snippets of information at any time in a sort of psychic way. Um, but then if we maybe sit down and do a remote viewing, we're taking that a bit deeper. And then if maybe we do some kind of um, sensory deprivation experience, like in a tank or something like that, we may be taking that a step deeper again. And then if we go into this full disconnection from our body, so our awareness has become front and center and the bodily experience has kind of gone into the background, then the full out of body experience can happen. So it's it's this sort of going degrees of of depth but that doesn't mean that on a day-to-day level you can't get these little snippets and um, pieces of information it's just that you're not totally focused on them you're focused maybe on you know you're on a train or you're driving or whatever it might be so you're focused on that Um, but then you just get these momentary glimpses Um, but if you were to stop and try to go more focus, which is essentially what learning to have an out-of-body experience is. It's that taking time and then developing that ability to to disconnect from from your physical sensory awareness. And having an aerial view can be a part of the out-of-body experience as well? It's nearly always a part of it, yeah. There's nearly always... That's actually more common than having a second body. A lot of people assume there's a kind of spirit body, but actually it's only around around 30% of people who actually have that consistently. So the majority of people either have a traveling awareness, that's about 40%, and then the remaining percent is, is other things like uh, a sphere of awareness or, you know, something like that. But the most common characteristics are this sense of floating, uh, sense of movement, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really one of the things that underlines it as separate to other experiences. Trauma is a way, like you mentioned, through a near-death experience or maybe even having a car accident where people can leave their bodies are there other uh, ways that people can sometimes spontaneously have an out-of-body experience that you've come across? Like I, like I was mentioning um, previously, I think with out-of-body experiences, when you go through the cases, there's nearly every type of occurrence someone will have an out-of-body experience as a result of it. So fainting, hyper-concentration, meditation, um, yeah, all, all of those kinds of anything where consciousness is focused on a particular thing or, or away from the physical body or more internally with meditation, something like that. It, it doesn't commonly happen that way, but there are instances where it, where it has arisen in that way. The most common way people have spontaneous experiences is actually from a relaxed waking state. So they'll just be like relaxing at home and, and it will, um, it will be triggered that way. So, um, that's actually like statistically in the studies that have been done, that was the most common precursor to, to the experience. So if you, t- if you take that a step further, things like sensory deprivation are, would, I believe, increase that likelihood quite a lot. I think even in psychic experiments in general, sensory deprivation is very helpful, but but it usually isn't used 
simply for financial reasons and things like that, that it's just costly to have flotation tanks or, you know, those kinds of things set up to do experiments. And unfortunately, partly because of the sceptical community, parapsychology is very underfunded. Well, hopefully that will be changing and your great work and experiences will inspire others to want to explore this further. Hopefully. There can be cases, too, where people unfortunately experience physical or psychological trauma and leave their bodies, uh, perhaps as a way of coping with the experience as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know, I guess, why why they left the body or whether it was a sort of coping mechanism or anything like that. But, um, yeah, it, it would seem sort of logical that it that it can happen in that way. I mean, I have worked with people who um, have disabilities and things like that, and they use the out-of-body experience to basically um, experience the world without the disability, essentially. So that's actually uh, an interesting factor as well that can be explored so so yeah um but it's hard it's hard to say exactly when it's a spontaneous experience it's hard to say what the kind of uh motivation might have been on a sort of deeper level but i think uh often uh with intentional experiences people can do it for that reason it became very popular during lockdown for example (laughs) Because people were, I think, using it as a way to kind of get out of the house, essentially, and things like that. You know, people became more interested in it during that period. And you mentioned that it's something that can come under people's control. What are some of the steps or suggestions you have and how people can have an out-of-body experience? Well, I think I've alluded to quite a few of them uh, during this. I mean, I think the... The most important thing with out-of-body experiences, I think, what the, the mistake most people make is to focus on uh, collecting techniques. This is what I see over and over again. They just look for more and more and more techniques. Um, and really, it's about that shift in consciousness or that shift in your um, depth of connection um, is really the key. The, what I would call the pre-state, the... So what I mean by that is your mental, physical state when you attempt to have the experience. So then it doesn't matter so much what technique you use. You have to have the right foundation for initiating the experience. That's what makes the difference. Because there's so many techniques out there and you see internet forums where people are kind of like, oh, I did this technique and it worked first time. And then someone else will say, I'm doing the same technique for... I don't know, six months, a year, whatever, and it hasn't worked. Um, so they'll blame the technique, but it's not really about that. It's about having the right foundation um, for the experiences. Yeah, in your book, you describe how there are people, as you just said, who might benefit from another approach, shall we say, based on sort of their personality. Yeah. And I, I like how you give that as options because no one approach is going to be the same for every body. <laughs> well, that's very important as well, yeah. Because, uh, uh, for example, I, I think I, I started to move in that direction with my approaches because I used to quite like visual techniques, for example. So I remember 
with one of my students uh, many years ago. I, I said to him, oh, let's try this sort of visual technique. And he said to me, I can't visualize. Um, you know, I can't do that. I'm no good at anything visual. And that was, I think, the moment the penny dropped for me that people can be really different and you can get people who are very, you know, very physical. So they like you know, activity type techniques or they like, or they're very analytical and very sort of introverted types. So they like to do something that's more, you know, analytical in its approach. And, you know, and there are techniques that fit all of those kinds of categories. So, so I started to, instead of fitting the person to the technique, fit the technique to the person and then start to look at where that person might need to work on themselves and where they maybe are not, you know, quite aligning with, with the approaches and things like that. So they can, they can get themselves to the right kind of state for an OBE. So it's just, yeah, I think I've sort of taken things in a bit of a new paradigm and trying to kind of work out what it is that why does this same technique work for one person and not work for another person and, and what what it is that um highlights someone who who is able to initiate an OBE very easily and someone who struggles um and often it is just things that can be changed like i said like the foundational aspects it's not you know there's very very few people who can't get anywhere with this i mean i think in the 30 plus years I've been doing this. I've only encountered one person who really couldn't get anywhere with it. And that person was more because their own attitude um, was that I, you know, every time you talk to them about doing a technique, they were just like, Oh, I could never do this, you know, and obviously someone who has that attitude, you can't really teach them. Um, but anyone who's sort of open to it and has a positive attitude and works at it, I think they can they can at least have a few experiences. You also share in your book that fear can be a hindrance to having one of these experiences. And some people listening might be thinking, oh, that sounds scary. <laughs> what do you say to those folks? I think there's a lot of, again, unfortunately, sort of uh, folk fears and, and things like this that are out there, superstitious kind of ideas and whatever. But I think actually it's quite the opposite. I think, as I alluded to, out-of-body experiences can be quite a healing and beneficial experience. I don't think there's there's any danger to it or anything like that. I know some people have these kinds of belief systems and that's their choice, but in in the in the years I've been doing it, I've never seen any evidence, and I've looked quite hard to find some evidence for any kind of negative outcome of these types of experiences. And all I've ever found is, yeah, fears and things like that, which are usually not actually related to out of body experiences. They're they're related to something like sleep paralysis, and the person has misinterpreted sleep paralysis as being the same as an out-of-body experience, and, and that's where the confusion has arisen. But even with sleep paralysis, it's a horrible experience and scary for a lot of people, but it's still not actually going to harm you. You know, it's just like having a nightmare. We don't want to have a nightmare, but it's not going to, you know, it's not going to hurt you. Um, so... Even the, the downside that people have associated with OBEs, I think is still ultimately, um, you know, not really harmful. So, and I don't teach 
sleep paralysis or methods that use that approach. So my approach is to use mainly a waking state approach and I've never had anyone report to me having any kind of negative experience by doing it the way I teach it. Well, that's excellent news. You also describe that there's a vibrational state that seems to rise before you have your out-of-body experience. Can you share more about that? I, I think the vibrational state is one of what I would call the transitional stages. So I think as you're going from what I would call in-body awareness, so your normal, everyday sort of alpha state kind of way of looking at the world, um, as you're going through that transitional process, there's a shift that takes place and you start to get this kind of, you know, moving between, like an, an in-between state, essentially. And I think that's kind of what the vibrations are. Um, you could also describe it as something like almost like a, the engine is running like with a car or something like that. It's almost like it's, it's a sign that you're ready to go, basically, that you're ready to have the out-of-body experience. So then it's just that's the point that you would apply a simple technique in order to cause that final part of getting to the out-of-body experience. Not everybody gets the vibrations, I should say, though. The vibrations are the most common. It's about 60% of people get the vibrations. Um, but some also get a kind of void environment, which is not negative or scary in any way. It's just almost like being in a deep meditational state, like a rudimentary level of consciousness where there's no intruding thoughts or imagery or anything like that. It's just a still mind, um, a kind of blank still mind. And from that, the outbody experience can arise so that's another one that's reported. And then a small percentage of people describe things like buzzing noises or convers hearing conversations. Some even hear music, like that sounds almost like angelic music, that kind of thing. Um, and there may be a very tiny percentage don't report anything or at least don't remember anything. So that would be the, the smallest group. But yeah, so there seems to be for most people some kind of transitional uh, stage. And how does one come back to the physical body? <laughs> Actually, the the coming back is usually people are more focused on trying to stay out longer is usually the, the thing because uh, most people... Most people want to have longer experiences than they have initially, especially in the early stages. People tend to have a few seconds to a few minutes, um, and then the experience will kind of destabilize and they'll come back to their body. Um, but as you practice, you can, it starts to become more like an average of about 20 minutes or something like that. So the, the it increases to a more consistent amount of time, but. And then it, and then naturally you'll just come back to your body. Um, but if you want to come, go back to your body earlier, which I haven't really had anyone say to me they wanted to come back earlier, but hypothetically, if you did, um, most things with the out of body experience, you just put your, your focus or your attention on where you want to go. And if you put your attention significantly enough, you'll just, you'll just go back to your body basically. Um, or another approach is just to be in the vicinity of your body. And often that initiates going back to the body as well. I mean, I have heard 
some reports on occasion of people taking a bit of time. It's like they've tried to get back into their body and it hasn't sort of just initiated straight away. But, um, but again, they're, they're rare. It's more like an unusual thing, but, but, uh, you know, they do eventually just, you know, reconnect, but that's very, very rare. You know, maybe, maybe I hear a report like that every, five years or something, you know, if, if that. You've shared a few so far. Are there any other experiences that show the accuracy of the out-of-body experience where you've been able to verify what's actually been happening in the physical world that does indicate that you didn't have, in fact, have this out-of-body experience? Well, I mentioned briefly the Soho experience was probably the most significant because there were, there were people there when I had the experience. So that was, um, that was pretty unusual. Um, so there were four people actually there. I was teaching the G technique, which is one of the methods that I use. It's one of the, the physical category of techniques. Um, and I went into an out of body experience and then found myself with this duotone vision that I mentioned. So blue, it was like blue green vision, blue gray sort of, but it, sort of more blue green um and i was standing looking down the street um and i saw this explosion burst out i knew i was on old compton street in london i knew i was on the corner of moore street um which is a small street that kind of connects into old compton street and i was looking down and i saw this explosion and then i saw the kind of chaos afterwards i reported this to all the people that were there um when i had the out-of-body experience and then five days late, I said it was precognitive as well. And then five days later, there was this actual bombing took place. Um, then I had a similar experience with the 2005 um, uh, bombing in London as well. Uh, there was another terrorist attack on the, on the tube, the underground system, and on some buses as well. And I saw, again, saw one of the attacks ahead of time. Um, and then on more everyday sort of mundane level of verification, um, one that's been featured in, in a book and also, um, also I've made some videos on it, um, was one where I went to, when I was living in Estonia, I used to live in Tallinn, the capital of Estonia. Um, I lived there for 10 years and, um, in one experience I went over the old town. I lived on the edge of the old town. And I went over the old town, um, down to where there was the Alexander Nevsky Cathedral, which was built by the Russians as a kind of almost like a political statement, uh, cause Estonia is not a Slavic culture and it's not, um, has no relationship to Russia. They just sort of invaded during the Soviet era. Um, but they're actually a Finnic culture. So they're much more closely related to Finland. The language is very similar to Finnish. So I came over the top of the building and came down the other side. And I saw basically that the building had been damaged and that there was kind of tarpaulin and that they'd done all this kind of uh, work on, on the, on the window to block it up until they repaired it kind of thing. Um, and this seemed like a very uncharacteristic thing um, in terms of the building. So I, I reported it to my partner at the time. And so we noted everything down um, and then went and 
checked the place and I took a photograph of it. So this, this is an example of one where it was very, you know, solidly kind of verified. Another example that also happened in Tallinn was when I had an Albany experience in the winter and I saw the, I saw the, the huge fir tree for Christmas being delivered and being pulled into, into place. And I described exactly at what stage all of that was. Um, and so we went out into the square, which was only a short distance from where I lived. We went to the square and we saw that it was exactly as I'd seen it. And just, uh, just a few hours earlier, there was nothing there at all. So it was, you know, that was another kind of example of perceiving things. There's been lots of them, but that's just, you know, a couple that come to mind. Can you describe briefly what the G technique is? Well, the G technique is a technique that uses um, your physicality and breathing techniques combined together. So intense breathing with uh, physical uh, tension, physical muscle tension combined together to put you into basically an altered state or the conducive state for the out-of-body experience. So instead of focusing on like a visualization technique or a, or a perceptual technique, it's more about getting your mind and body into the right condition. It would, it would be similar to what Robert Monroe used to say, um, mind awake, body asleep. Um, I would refine that to mind awake, body in shutdown. You don't have to be asleep. Asleep is a complete misnomer. Um, you know, and obviously, as we've mentioned, you can also be in a cardiac arrest condition. So the body can be in total shutdown. So, so I would refine it to body in some kind of shutdown state. So another form of shutdown state is physical exhaustion. Um, so it can be deep relaxation, sleep, physical exhaustion or cardiac arrest and obviously we don't want the last one so so the those three are the other sort of key ways to do it but a lot of people find physical exhaustion easier than deep relaxation you also created uh, your own installation or a device that helps people to have an out-of-body experience the original one goes right back to 1998 99 um which was when I built the first structure, um, which was a steel, a steel sort of cage essentially, which had a central platform suspended from it by very fine wire. So essentially you felt like you were floating. You got on this central platform and you felt like you were floating in midair. It would adjust to the weight of the person based on the, the way it was suspended. And then there was a, um, an audio, track that was an early version of my infraliminal technology which is a sound technology um which is not binaural beat based a lot of people assume that it's a form of binaural beats it's not um it uses infrasound um which is low level sound frequencies and subliminals um so it's a mixture of the two so hence the name infraliminal so that that is designed to um, essentially guide the person's awareness. If they follow with that, if they try to tune their mind into it, it will guide them to the vibrational state. So it puts them to the point where they're ready to have the out-of-body experience. So it's a kind of way of helping you get to that 
launching pad kind of point. So the structure that I built was like a, you could almost say it was like a, almost like something like a flotation tank, but without, without water. So you, instead of being immersed in water, you could just be like on this platform and kind of listening to the sound and you were completely immersed by the sound. Um, so that was the, the first version I made. Then in, um, 2004, um, I made a large scale virtual reality installation at the Science Museum in London. Um, so that, that used a 10 meter curving screen with stereoscopic projection. So basically like you would get if you go to the cinema and you see like a full 3D film with the glasses and everything. So we, we had that, which was based upon my out of body and psychic experiences. So, um, and based on the environments of London that I'd grown up in and I'd had experiences around. So that was, and that was a singular experience. So even though it was this large scale installation, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a group thing where lots of people would be walking through. Everybody had like a, I think it was 15, 15 or 20 minute slot. So you would book a slot and then you would go in and you would have a complete experience on your own in this large space and be able to kind of interact with this environment. So the idea was it's almost like, it's almost like suggesting what the experience is like. And if you can kind of take that on board enough, you can kind of program your mind to, to kind of actually have the real experience eventually. So that was the sort of uh, next thing I did. Um, and then since then, I've worked with all kinds of, you know, types of sensory deprivation and different methodologies and things like that, but generally moved more towards the scientific experiments that we've already talked about. Where is that now? Unfortunately, those kinds of installations, they, they tend to just get packed away into storage boxes and things like that, unfortunately, because those that's it. The science museum is like a major museum in London. So, um, you know, they, they have exhibits for a period of time and they don't get re repeated unless it's part of the original like collection or something. They have like pieces of space, spacecraft and meteorites and all, you know, uh, Isaac Newton's things. And, you know, it's a very, they got lots of different interesting scientific things there. Well, maybe you can dust it off someday. Yeah, I would love to, or, or kind of revisit it with the latest technology because we have, we have kind of better technology now, um, than we did back then. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to, to revisit it, but it's always, uh, funding for these kinds of things. And most of what I do is self funded. So it's, uh, you know, people just helping me with what by buying my things and that kind of stuff. You mentioned that you don't shy away from engaging with skeptics and some skeptics will say or have said that these experiences are all just coming from the brain. Well, they could be coming from the brain, but I think they're extended beyond it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they, they do say things like that, but the science doesn't support them. Um that that's the problems. It's like the studies that I've done, like with the Rhine and Dean Radin's work and Rupert Sheldrake's work and all these kinds of people who are willing to do the actual experiments. 
um, that's not what they're finding. They're finding evidence that there is something more going on. And sometimes hugely statistically significant results are, are coming in, especially when you look at it over and over and over, like repeated, like, um, you know, Dean Radin's meta-analysis of, of the Gansfeld experiments, for example, and things like that. So I think his figure was 29 quintillion to one in favor of psychic ability or psi. So when you, when you start to get into that kind of level, it, it, it seems irrational and unscientific to me to just dismiss these things. Um, and it, it just becomes almost like a political position rather than actually science because in most areas of science, you engage with the experts who are working in that field. Um, so, you know, you don't go to, you don't sort of say, oh, the whole of physics is, is rubbish because I don't agree with it, you know, but that's kind of what happens with parapsychology. It's like, oh no, all of parapsychology is rubbish because I don't happen to personally agree with it. That is the sort of attitude. Um, and the problem is most of the vocal skeptics are not doing actual research themselves. Um, Susan Blackmore is probably the main skeptic about body experiences. And I've debated her on two occasions and she hasn't done any actual research in 25 plus years. Um, and if you, if you read her book, which I have, um, you can work out that essentially she gave up doing parapsychology when the remote viewing research was released. In the book, in the book, she says the reason for that is because she would either have to read all of the remote viewing research or she has to say, I don't believe it and I'm going to move on to another field. So she said that she would move on to another field and she wasn't going to read it. So we know that the remote viewing research was released in 1995, the original research, the first release. So that means that she hasn't been active in any sense since 1995, uh, if we work that out. So this is the kind of problem you're up against because the skeptics today are still quoting people like Sue Blackmore or, you know, other skeptics. Um, and they're not actually doing any kind of research and they're not up on the latest work that's been done. Like, um, Patricio Trisoldi in Italy, for example, who's doing also doing active out of body experience research. Um, he's one of the few in the world, but he is doing it. And I've also published a paper with him. Um, so there are, there are people actively doing this kind of stuff. So I think we should look to the, the researchers who are doing work on this rather than listening to sort of vocal skeptics who, you know, at the end of the day, are, are approaching things from an ideological perspective, I think. So that's why I'm willing to talk about it because I'm, I'm willing to kind of discuss the research and say, well, this, all this data has been coming out for, well, 100 and we're about 140 years or something now of parapsychological research and especially the research from the late nineties or the early two thousands is very, very well controlled. Um, so I see no reason to sort of dismiss it really. Well, thank you for being willing to debate these people and these views and to also to have the skeptical, the true skeptical mind 
yourself so that you can really look at what's happening and be very discerning yourself. Yeah. I think that's the way it should be. We, I mean, it, it doesn't help anyone to just dismiss things out of hand. I, th- I think it's important to engage with, with what's there and to see if we can, we can learn something. Because even if, even if we do conclude that it's all illusory, um, none of the skeptic, well, I shouldn't say none, but the majority of the skeptics do not deny that there is a real experience. Like Sue Blackmore, for example, would not deny that people have a real experience. That can be life changing. They, they, they accept that. They just don't believe that there can be any kind of psychic or objective element to it. Um, but even if it does turn out to just be an illusory experience, it's obviously a hugely valuable one and a hugely life-changing one. Um, so even if you took the hardline skeptic perspective, I think we should still be exploring the experience. And I think if, if, if it is true, as the data suggests, that there is a real experience that is objective and we are able to perceive more than just with our physical senses, then it's one of the most incredible things possible and, and we should be really investigating that, not kind of poo-pooing it, you know? Listening to each other and really hearing each other is very valuable and taking on board other people's experiences uh, with an open mind and an open heart. And I appreciate uh, your position with that. Is there anything else you want to share with us today about spirituality and the out-of-body experience? I think it's all about just having the experience and seeing how it transforms you and yeah can lead to that sense of inner peace that you mentioned you know that sense of calmness and inner peace which is very valuable in this world i think (laughs) we need it now more than ever graham nichols thank you so much for all that you've shared with us i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for advocating and all that you've done for the parapsychology field as well thank you so much for being with me today thank you And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 